The hello and welcome to the Clinical Pharmacist podcast, where we discuss interesting topics relating to clinical pharmacists in general practice. I'm your host today, Becky Barron, and I'm the Digital Marketing Assistant at CPS. Today, I'm also really pleased to be joined by Runa. Runa is an experienced senior IP pharmacist, and she's also the Director of Clinical Pharmacist Academy. Hi, Runa. How are you? Hi, Becky. I'm good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. We're also joined by our guest today, Anzina Chowdhury. It's really great to have you here. You've recently joined us, and she's also a non-independent prescriber and a newly qualified pharmacist. Welcome to the podcast, Danzina. Hi, thank you for having me. It's been an honor to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. Thank you. So today we've got a really interesting topic. We're going to be discussing what you can and can't do as a non-independent prescriber. So before we get into that, it might be helpful for our listeners, Danzina, if you can tell us a little bit more about yourself and, and your role, really. Okay, so I work from Manchester. I'm currently working remotely for one of the PCMs in the North Central region. Um, and it's been eight weeks since I've transitioned over to primary care. So I'm still fairly new as a pharmacist. I'm now approaching my third year post-registration. My background is community where I've worked with a local pharmacist and I was also given the opportunity to manage a pharmacy as well. And now I've transitioned over to primary care. Lovely. Could you also tell us a little bit about your journey transitioning into primary care? You know, how that journey has gone for you? So the main reason why I wanted to become a pharmacist is because I like to teach people um, and support them. In pharmacy, I'm able to educate patients about the conditions and and counsel them on the medication. In the community, I didn't really get to do that as much as I thought I could. Um, There was always demands to check prescriptions when it came to counseling a patient. In the consultation room, I was always conscious of the time and how long it would take. So fast forward to last September, I enrolled onto the clinical pharmacy diploma with the University of Manchester. And my academic advisor said that I I don't have to wait until I finish the the course. I can start applying for clinical pharmacist jobs. So initially I was looking at um, NHS 101 advisor roles. Um, but there wasn't any nearby uh, in my region and at the time I was looking for remote work. So um, I applied everywhere indeed, but they always wanted someone who's got one year's experience and, and knows the system already. And then I saw um, an advert from Clinical Pharmacist Solutions and it, it said experience is advantageous. So I sent my CV and then I researched about CPS and I stumbled across the academy. And I remember it was Black Friday, so I bought the course for the price and uh, I spent the weekend learning the basics about the systems and, and the roles. And there was also some interview tips on the website, um, which I used to prepare the next stages. And that's when I realized that anyone can actually transition to general practice. You don't need a clinical diploma. The accelerator program actually gave me the foundation that I needed to learn more about the systems and and how to actually basically start off doing the tasks. So yeah, I assumed that you needed a hospital background um, and then I'd never go near the jobs that said clinical, but I'd always admired the pharmacists that, you know, had these roles because I thought they were very clever and you'd need more experience. So I think confidence definitely plays a big part in this as well. Um, now, eight weeks in, um, I feel more confident in this role and I'm definitely coming more out of my comfort zone quite a lot um, with different 
tasks and, and queries that come my way. Um, we don't know what the patient's going to ask us, but I've been trained. Um, I know where to look for um, for the answers in terms of like go to the guidance and, and the guidelines. But that's really interesting. If I can just jump in as well. Uh, so I'd like to thank you for highlighting the fact that, you know, as you said, you don't necessarily have to have an IP qualification or, you know, a clinical background per se, as you said, you know, for, for example, uh, you know, a hospital background um, to be able to uh, make the transition into primary care. So I think that's a common misconception that many pharmacists have. Uh, I'm glad that, you know, you, you stumbled across our training programs and it's nice that your clinical supervisor gave you the advice to to go ahead and start applying for jobs because I think a lot of pharmacists they do hold back thinking um you know I don't have a prescribing qualification or I don't have a clinical background or a clinical diploma or you know I've never worked in a, a clinical setting like hospital but you can indeed um you know go ahead and apply so that, that's more about my journey and how I've actually um, come into primary care. Um, obviously, there's still a lot to learn um, and um, I'm looking forward to continually training with the academy. There's lots of courses that are available as well. At the moment, I'm looking at the different medication reviews. So that's something that I look forward to doing in the future. That all sounds really good. It's great to hear as well that you've grown in confidence within the role, I think. You know, I think that's really important. Do you think as well that you could tell us a little bit more about what you've learned so far in terms of what you can and can't do within your role? Yeah, so I've actually made myself an acronym. It's called Clinical Farm, and um, it's basically summarises what you cannot do and what you can do as a, as, as a non-independent prescriber. So if we start with the first five letters, so C, obviously cannot, and then you've got letters, initiate, new diagnosis, and issue. So going back to the letters, when we are given a letter, we're instructed to add a medication uh, onto the repeat template. But what we have to do is be careful as to who's instructing us to add it onto the medication list. So. If it's a consultant, then I can always go back and say as as instructed by the consultant or as as directed by the letter dated such and such a date. But there was one query from a counsellor and she suggested that we give the patient melatonin. And obviously because the, the counsellor didn't didn't have um, a prescribing qualification, that letter request was sent to us. So in that situation, I wouldn't be able to add it onto the repeat template. I would have then forwarded it onto the the GP to have a consultation with the with the patient. I think I actually you've told the patient to book an appointment with the GP. Um, so that's when it comes to letters, you need to be careful with what you can and can't do in there. So the the, the next letter I um, initiate new treatment in suspected or unconfirmed diagnoses. So obviously the doctors, they, they need to go through lots of investigations before they can confirm a diagnosis. So we shouldn't initiate a treatment before the diagnosis is in place. Even something as simple as hypertension, uh, I saw yesterday that looking at the notes, it was still high blood pressure. They didn't 
officially diagnosed as hypertension until they've actually gone through all of the the different checks that they need to do. So that's definitely something that I, I need to do and um, not to newly diagnose a patient as well. Um, so that goes on to the next letter N. Um, and then I for issue, um, not to issue a request for an acute medication that's never been prescribed before. Um, that's definitely sort of things um, that we, we shouldn't do as a clinical pharmacist. But one thing that I've realized in this role is that there's more things that I actually can do than can't. So there's sometimes things that I think, okay, I can't do this. This is something that the GP needs to do. But then when I go back to query it with my colleagues, they actually say, yes, you, you can actually go ahead and do that. For example, a letter might tell me to uh, prescribe a low dose of vitamin D, but using my clinical knowledge, my my background as a pharmacist, um, I am actually allowed to prescribe conicalciferol 800 units, for example, one a day. So that's just an example. Um, sometimes the letters can be vague, or just add a counseling channel blocker, but using my, my degree of my clinical knowledge, I would then be able to implement it and um, add it onto the repeat template using my clinical judgment. Is there anything else that you wanted to add to that, Runa? Uh, yeah, I think uh, you've made some fantastic points and it is great that you've created a little um, acronym, uh, Clinical Farm. Uh, hopefully we can share that uh, with the audience um, that's listening. And I just wanted to add one more point with regards to you know the example that you said that you came across yesterday. Um, as you said, a patient wasn't actually officially diagnosed with hypertension, but the doctor had just written, you know, perhaps uh, the patient was suffering from high blood pressure. So if it's just written like that, you know, that that can be, you know, just be a, a symptom in that moment in time. Um, not everyone who walks into the surgery and, uh, you know, if we record that their blood pressure is high at that moment in time, we cannot diagnose them with hypertension. So I think it's important and that you've highlighted that, and rightly so, as you said, as a non-prescriber, there are some things that you cannot do, uh, and all those examples that you went through were very helpful. So just to highlight the, the few uh, key points that you mentioned was, as a non-prescriber, you need to make sure that you're not actually taking the responsibility to diagnose and treat a new condition. As you said, the wording on a letter from secondary care or any other clinic letter is very important. If they're just making a suggestion and that suggestion is not is not actually coming from a prescriber themselves, then you need to make sure you don't take that responsibility as well. You need to make sure that you don't take that responsibility on as a non-prescriber. So yeah, wording is very important. And then the other thing that you mentioned was to issue um, a request for an acute medication that's never been prescribed before because then, you know, you're basically relying on either the patient self-diagnosis or, you know, and essentially what that means is if you go ahead and issue that, you are taking the patient's word for it and you're even taking responsibility for diagnosing and treating that condition. So, yeah, all very good points. And as you said, there's actually more that you can do as a non-prescriber. I think sometimes some pharmacists who are especially new to the role, if they're a non-prescriber, they might think that there's very little that they can do. But as you've rightly mentioned, there's a, you've probably discovered that there is more yeah. that you can do than, than you can't. So I'd love to hear, you know, some of the things that you've been able to do in your role. So 
going to the remaining of the of the acronym. So you've got CAN, action, that is process, hypertension, alternatives. Um, I'll go through each letter individually. So what can I do? So going on to A for action, um, I can action quaff alert, but I'll be honest, that's something that I, I need to work on myself, but I know that's something that I can do. And it can also add an assigned read code. So when you receive a letter, there's always like diagnoses and it's always important, especially if it's, even if it's a, a past diagnosis, it's always important to check whether that diagnosis has already been added because sometimes it does get missed off. So just making sure that these read codes are added onto um, the, the system. So L for letters, um, it's basically we, we process the letters. Sometimes we have what's known as shared care. Um, so if it's, for example, something like um, Parkinson's disease or maybe epilepsy that would require hospital monitoring or a consultant, then we call that shared care where they, they would go and do the, the monitoring. Um, they would monitor the patients, do the blood tests, but they would also feed back to the GP surgeries and let them know what patient, what the medication the patient's on and for us to continue prescribing that in the community. So we always receive letters and we might receive updates from um, A&E, um, our discharge letters, and that's when we need to do what we call the medicines reconciliation to see what medication's been stopped, what medication's been added, and also um, contacting the patients and making sure that they're aware of these changes as well. So yeah, so we'll be processing clinical letters, discharge summaries. H for hypertension. So as a, as a clinical pharmacist, we can, uh, even though we can't initiate a drug, we can up titrate and down titrate medications. So I put hypertension, but also there's pain medications, antidepressants. We would have that consultation with, with the patient and see, for example, with um, a medication, uh, antidepressant, to determine whether a patient's stable or not, we would do what's called um, a, a depression medication review. And um, we'd find out whether the mood's stable, whether they're eating and sleeping well, whether they've got any side effects, are they compliant with the medication? But that the main thing that we'd find out also is whether they've got any um, thoughts of suicide and self-harm, whether, whether they've got a support network at home, and also to safety net yourself, that if they do have those thoughts, then to call NHS 111 um, or let the surgery know right away. And that's how, from having this conversation, we'll be able to see are they currently stable on that dose? Do they wish to come off um, or do they wish to be up titrated? And there's a policy in place, but you can also refer back to the NICE guideline and they'll obviously um, advise us on how to titrate. Um, similarly today, I just had one a patient wants to come off duloxetine and they want to know whether they can just come off it quick, straight away. So I, I referred back to the NICE guidance and you would titrate them off them over the next two weeks so you'd half the dose each time. In terms of the hypertension, we've got a policy in place in the practice where if they come to the, like you're mentioning Runa, if they come to the practice with high blood pressure, then they would then need, they would be then given a, a blood pressure machine to take home and they'll take blood pressure readings for the next seven days, morning and evening, and then they send it to the meds management team. 
uh, we then um, calculate the average and then according to the policy if it's above the threshold for the age of 80 and um, for home blood pressure readings if it's above 135 then that would indicate that they have hypertension so we would up titrate um, them onto the next step we can now diagnose them as hypertension because of the policy in place but if they're under the age of 40 then I would refer them to the GP to book an appointment so that's just you, you have to look at the the practice policy as well mm-hmm. um, to make sure that that's okay so because I've got that go ahead I am now okay to um, diagnose the patient with hypertension after those steps have been taken yeah and if I can just jump in quickly and see now so it's clear that um, you are quite competent in these clinical areas and you seem to have a very quick, clear guideline of the framework that you are able to work within. Uh, you've had the go-ahead from the GPs at the practice. You've obviously read up on the NICE guidelines with regards to these clinical areas that you mentioned, for example, hypertension and depression uh, being the two that, that you mentioned. I think it is important to highlight that although you are not a prescriber, if you are competent in a clinical area such as hypertension or depression, if you are aware of you know the management plans, um, the differential diagnosis for that particular condition, um, you know the treatment plans, the red flags, and you are clear with you know when to refer, you know when you feel like patient um, or or a case may be a little bit more complex than the usual ones that you know when to pass those back to a prescriber, for example, then you certainly can um, up or down titrate. And I think it's a good idea, particularly if you are a non-prescriber who is working in primary care, it's a good idea to read up on the more common clinical areas uh, that you see on a day-to-day practice. So um, hypertension and depression are very good um, areas to start with, just because it, it, fortunately, it is very common in primary care. Um, so if you are able to not only review those patients, but also up or down titrate, you know, the management plan uh, for those patients within the framework that you've been given, you can provide so much value to the, the practice team and be a key member. So I think, um, you know, pharmacists, although you may not be a prescriber yet, um, don't shy away from um, getting involved in reviewing and so are these chronic conditions. If you are competent within that area and you've been given the go-ahead um, by the uh, GPs at the practice or anyone else who supervising you in your work, um, then it's a great um, and, and great thing to do and it's very rewarding as well. Back over to you, Enzina, with your acronym. So um, A for alternatives. So we can give um, alternatives if a medication's out of stock, we can switch the formulation. If the diagnosis is confirmed, then according to that diagnosis, we can then go back to the NICE guidance and see if there's any alternatives that we can give altogether. So it, initially I thought I was giving them a new medication, I was initiating something new, but actually it's because of the, there's already a diagnosis in place, I can go ahead and do that. So at the moment, for example, um, utagestran, I don't know if the pronunciation is correct, but mm-hmm. That's currently out of stock and um, what we would give as an alternative is Provera. But again, just just because that's 
the alternative, it doesn't mean that dose is the same for all. So again, go back to the guidelines, make sure that the dose is fine. So is it a cyclical dose or is it a continuous dose? Um, is it Prevera 5 milligrams or 10 milligrams? So always go back to the guidelines and just make sure that it, it's a, a direct um, alternative, if you like. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, as you mentioned, so you, you definitely have to take into consideration you know, all those prescribing aspects. So um, all those prescribing considerations, um, make sure that it has the similar sort of side, side effect profile. Um, are there any new uh, cautions or contraindications that you need to consider? Um, and is there any new counseling points that the patients need to be made aware of? But yeah, absolutely. So going to the last two letters of the acronym, um, remove. So we can remove medications from the, the repeat template. So when I'm doing a medication review, or if I'm just authorizing medications, I would just make sure that um, if there's anything that's out of sync, then to either, it might be that they'd need another acute prescription to be able to tally up to the rest of the medications, if you like, to synchronize it all as one. Um, an example today, a patient's on endapamide and paroxetine. So he has to keep ordering it twice a month and he wanted them to be synchronized. So gave him a call and it turns out that he has more of the paroxetine. So he could wait for another week until he can order it with endapamide. So just first of all, having that conversation with the patient, making sure that they do need the extra tablets or, and you know, how can you safely go about um, synchronizing them? Um, also, when I say remove off the repeats, if they're not requesting something for, you know, more than a year, then you can um, stop the medication and put at the pharmacist request and then um, just maybe put last issued 2020, for example, so that there's a reason in place as to why you stopped the medication. So just on that note, anything, any action that you do, just make sure that you've got a backup, um, you've got a reason why you've done it. Um, when I add something new onto the repeat template, you have um, an administration note. So I'll put in there as per endocrinology letter, and put the date so that when someone's doing an audit as to how this medication started or why this medication was stopped, you've got something in there for them to kind of go off. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I think that that's a very good point that you've highlighted, and Zena. Documentation is so important, um, as you say. We need the audit trail um, so that uh, you know you've you've displayed your clinical decision making. Um, you know, if it was to come into question. Um, for whatever reason. And of course, it helps between, um, you know, passing over the information to the next clinician who's opening the, the patient record. So, you know, you're all on the same page and everyone has the, the correct information that they need to be able to make a cl appropriate clinical judgment and continue um, treating that patient. Definitely. Um, and that goes on to the last bit, which is my favorite. I love doing medication reviews. Um, <laughs> so that's basically the last letter of the acronym, what we can do. Because I, so I, I'm in my second year, so I missed the MURs in the community. So I never actually got to do them because it expired by the time I appeared with my thing. Yeah, I'm glad that I got to use the opportunity to do medication reviews. Then you've got two types of medication reviews. You've got note-based medication reviews where you just um, look at the, the patient's records and see 
um, you know, whether the, you know, the, the blood tests are on time. Are there any dose changes from recent letters? Are there any um, interactions with the medication? Um, and then reauthorize it that way. But the main thing you can do is with the medication review is, is contact the patient and um, have that conversation with them, see how they're getting on with the medication. But I just thought it'd be important to note that you can do note-based because um, at the moment, in the practice, we've just, the new, the medicines management um, team just started when I went to that surgery. So there's there's quite a big backlog um, of medication reviews that needs to be done alongside the medication requests as well. So you can do note-based reviews if it's safe to do so. But when it comes to things like um, antidepressants, you need to make sure that you do that mood review, make sure that you've covered the red flags are they having any um, thoughts of suicide or self-harm? So again, in that area, use your clinical judgment. Can this be a note-based review? Or do I need to speak to the medic, uh, the patient to see how they're getting on with the medication as well? Yeah, no, no that's very uh, all very good points, Athena. Thank you. And just to add to that with regards to note-based medication reviews. Um, so these are what you might call a level one uh, medication review. So an example that I can think of uh, what comes to mind is perhaps someone who's just on, um, you know, 25 micrograms of levothyroxine, for example, and that might be the only thing that, that they're on and you know that they're ordering it regularly and all you need to do is check that their monitoring is up to date, is a TSH with a normal range in within the last 12 months and that's probably, you know, maybe a good example of someone that might be suitable for a note-based review if you're, you know, as you said, the surgery's really running behind. Um, and save those uh, patient-facing consultations or those telephone consults uh, for those patients who, as you said, might be on medication like antidepressants or some of the more complex patients' cases where, you know, a, a conversation is definitely needed. So, yeah, thank you so much, Azina, for taking us through all of those. You've given us a very detailed breakdown on what you can and can't do as a non-independent um, prescriber in primary care. Just a couple of things that come to mind actually that um, you perhaps may not have touched upon that, that I can think of right now um, is requesting blood tests and other necessary monitoring. So as a uh, pharmacist, whether you're a prescriber or not, this is something that you can absolutely do. Um, and you, we know that it's one of the key things, um, or one of the key parts of our role um, as a clinical pharmacist in primary care is checking the monitoring of certain drugs and, and medical conditions and requesting those blood tests, um, you know, any other necessary monitoring such as, you know, ECG if someone's on amiodo, for example, uh, blood pressure, pulse checks. Um, another one that I can think of is perhaps making referrals to specialists or secondary care. Um, and this is, would be for in areas that you are competent in. So if you are confident that a particular patient needs to be seen by a specialist or needs to be referred to secondary care, um, then you can go ahead and, and make that referral. And, and I think just to wrap up as well is if you're unable to deal with a particular task um, and you may not be sure whether as a clinical pharmacist, should you be expected to carry out this particular task or not, you can also, you can always ask your colleagues. So what you don't want to do is pass back something to reception or uh, the GP saying that I'm unable to do it when in fact it's something that you, as a pharmacist, you should be able to do. So for example, if someone says, can you provide an alternative eye drop, for example, 
and you know you pass that back to them it's not going to look you know very well on you um if that's something that's normally expected from a pharmacist you know even though you may not be a prescriber so i think it's always a good idea to just check with your colleagues is this something that i'm supposed to be doing and if it does turn out to be something that you know is you know above your competency level you can you know do whatever you can in terms of information gathering um, taking some information for resources for example so that when you do pass it back to the gp or whoever it may be you know you're demonstrating that you have used some of your clinical expertise um, and it will make the you know the job for the gp a little bit easier because you've provided them with that information so you might say i'm unable to do this for xy reason this is what the uh, the guidelines state and you can even make a recommendation um, and then the the GP can make the final decision. So I think, you know, they really, they would appreciate that and it goes a long way. So yeah, I think that there's pretty much everything that I can think of right now. What we actually have um, as part of CPS is we've created a guidance document which clarifies um, all the points and all the different tasks that a non-prescriber can and cannot do in primary care. And um, I'd love to incorporate your acronym. <laughs> I know you said you want to tidy it up a little bit, um, but I'd love to incorporate your acronym and Zena into this guidance document. <laughs> <laughs> and what we'll do is we'll release that as a free resource on our academy platform. So please go on and check out uh, clinicalpharmacistacademy.org uh, to get your hands on that. Uh, so I think that that's all from me. Uh, Becky, have you got any other questions for Anzina? Yeah, well, I think, you know, they're all really interesting points. I think just before we finish, Anzina, a question for me is just, is there any advice that you'd want to give to those that are listening that are wanting to transition into primary care? When I initially started, there was this, um, it's a self-assessment document that you can find on the, the academy. So I, I, I did that before I started the Accelerator Programme. And then as soon as I did the accelerated program and did it again, I found that I actually was ticking most of the boxes for level one and two. Is it called the self-assessment, Runa? Yes, I believe so. It's the clinical pharmacy self-assessment, I believe. Definitely do the accelerated program. Um, even if you don't intend to work for clinical pharmacist solutions, it definitely looks good on your CV. Um, it's 10 hour CPD and it's, it's well recognized. Um, amongst the, the GP surgeries as well. Second of all, have confidence in yourself. Don't underestimate your role as a pharmacist and your qualification. Also, keep applying on Indeed or wherever you can um, and expect lots of rejections before you find the right job that covers to you. I think I just kept and I probably applied to so many roles, um, but don't let the rejection dishearten you. I'm sure that if I was to apply again, not that I will, I will stay with Clinical Pharmacist Solutions. <laughs> But I'm sure I'll I'll be in a better position now. Um, and also be up to date with your clinical knowledge. Um, go back to the nice guidelines with the BNF. But to be honest, when I did the accelerator program before I actually started the course, if I was to do the accelerator program now, I'll probably understand it a lot more as well because a lot of it is actually in practice as well. Um, putting your knowledge into practice, you'll remember it more. And also have a CPD portfolio. The the employers like to see that as well. Um, and um, have like a five-year plan in place, what you have um, planned in the long term. Again, there's interview tips on the CPA um, website. 
gives you that guidance as well. And last of all, make sure you have a support network. Um, if I didn't have the academy behind me, then I would have felt isolated in uh, where I'm working. Currently, we have a Telegram group, so any questions that I have, I'm always um, asking them to make sure that it's the right um, action to take, whether it's relevant to or to the GP, etc. So there's um, also, I think there's a clinical pharmacist network group um, outside of CPS that you can also join. So um, there's loads of telegram groups out there. Just make sure that you're with other pharmacists, uh, being in the company of other pharmacists, you'll, you'll start to appreciate your role and um, you'll have that confidence as well. Thank you. I think that's been a really useful few pieces of advice there and it's definitely been a useful discussion. So hopefully our listeners found it interesting. Thank you, Anzina, for joining us. It's been really great to hear your insights and to hear about how, how your journey's gone. And, and thank you as well, Runa, for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Becky. I think that's all we have time for today. But if anyone does have any further questions, any of our listeners, please do get in touch. You can contact us via our website at Clinical Pharmacist Solutions or via any of our social media platforms. So that's LinkedIn or Instagram or Facebook. And it'd be really great just to hear your thoughts. Thanks, everyone, and thanks for tuning in.